You're reading out of Revelation this morning, chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who have called themselves apostles and are not, and have found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, it's January 26th. How many of you all have made some New Year's resolutions? Few people, few folks. How many of you have given up on the idea of New Year's resolutions? Okay, there we go. That's a little bit more truthful answer. There we go. I like that. Uh, Well, some of you folks have said, you know what, I want to do things a little bit differently. I want to be healthier this year than I was last year. Uh, Maybe I want to read books this year. There's different things that you want to do. And I I believe that the idea of New Year's resolutions is to do things that are good for you, not bad for you. Agreed? Hopefully nobody in this room resolved this year to say, I'm going to do things that are more harmful to myself this year than I did last year. Right? None of that? Okay, good, good, good. If not, I do. My office hours are are, are uh, available to you. Um, as we look this morning, we get to see some things that are are, are good things. Yes. Exercise is a good thing, right? Exercising the body, and not not saying going going crazy with CrossFit, right? It's not a cult. That whole thing right out there. Those, some of those videos just cracked me up. But, but you got. CrossFit can be a good thing. Running can be a good thing. Uh, walking around the block can be a good thing. You know, like last year, I, I maybe walked maybe a quarter mile a day. This year, I want to walk a half mile a day. Those are, those are good goals and things to achieve. But exercise can become a bad thing, can't it? We see people that are just going crazy with it. In fact, I got on WebMD, and my wife's going to probably throw something at me this morning, but I got on WebMD. If you're a medical provider, when a patient walks into your office and they said, well, I've been on WebMD, you know it's going to be a long session, right? Because <laughs> you're going to have to re-educate them on actually what's going on with themselves. But anyways, I got on WebMD this morning, and I said, what are some things that are good for you that can take in and, and excess can be bad? Well, exercise was one of those things. 
Too much exercise can be a bad thing. Tear down your joints. Yes, Elijah, even you. It can be bad for you. Yes, <laughs> I know. But it can be a bad thing. And, and it, it, because guess what? If we start worshiping exercise, we miss out on its benefit. Sleep. Oh, I do love sleep. In fact, this time of year, you know, when it's darker, later, and earlier, you know, I, it's really hard for me to get out of bed, I must confess. I love sleep, but too much sleep is a bad thing. And actually, studies have shown that too much sleep can actually harm your body. Antibiotics. When you're sick and you need antibiotics, they're a good thing to help you get you know, there have some, been some very sick people even in this congregation that have gone antibiotics and it has helped them. But when you take antibiotics, when you don't need them, your body can build up immunity against the antibiotics and that when you do get sick, you're in really big trouble. People-pleasing. You know, as Christians, we're supposed to honor others, place others' needs before our own. But what is the motivation of that? Is, is it to gain their acceptance or is it to love them the way God's called us to love them? Hand washing. Did you know hand washing can be bad for you? <laughs> Too much hand washing can be bad for you. <laughs> Too much hand washing. Like they were saying that you can wash your hands too much. And now my wife and the medical providers, and I, and I use her as an example because she has to put a lot of lotion on her hands because every time they go in and out of a room, a patient's room, they have to get that alcohol stuff that bloop goes on their hands and they got to rub their hands. And it dries out their hands and it cracks them and it can become very painful. And, and so they need a lot of lotion. So too much hand washing can actually be harmful to you. Healthy food can be bad for you you're like what listen caloric intake is caloric intake like oh i got this great salad that i'm going to eat but eating 10 pounds of salad in a sitting is bad right <laughs> caloric intake is still caloric intake if you're not burning off what you're putting in your body it's bad for you whether it's greasy or not okay did you know too much water can be bad for you i've actually seen the results of this firsthand in the military Going out on road marches and stuff like that, and guys drinking too much water and getting really sick. Work. Yeah, nobody's fighting me on that one. Right? Too much work can be bad for you. We've got some workaholics in this room. I know it. I know it. Vitamins. Oh, yeah, vitamins. I've gone, you know, to some of my relatives' homes. And you go onto their countertop, and a four by four section of their countertop is filled with pills. And you're like, that's a lot of bottles. None of them are like from the pharmacy. They're all natural, okay? Just because they're all natural doesn't mean they're all good for you, okay? And just because it says organic doesn't mean organic. That's something else for later on. Friendships. Did you know you can have too many friendships? You can have so many friendships that you cannot balance life with all those people and you will actually wear yourself down and out. We weren't made to be in relationship with a thousand different people, a.k.a. social media. Oh, I won't go there. We're not going to go there, okay? 
But these can be all good things. Friendships are good things. Vitamins are good things. Work can be a good thing. Hand washing, all these things can be good things, but they were never meant to be ultimate things. They were never meant to be worshiped. And this morning, we're going to look at some verses of the Bible that I want to be very careful as we go through because they're very, very good things. But when placed in an ultimate position, became a bad thing for the church in Ephesus. Little background of the church in Ephesus, and if you don't have your Bibles open, I really, really, really encourage you to open those up to Revelation chapter 1, or chapter 2, excuse me. So this first letter of the seven letters written to the churches is the church to Ephesus. And the city was though not the capital of the province of Asia, is the most well-known city in the province. Think of Seattle. Think of San Francisco. And when you start thinking about the church in Ephesus, it would have been a, a close port city. A lot of commerce, a lot of trade, a lot of foreign people would have flowed through Ephesus. Ephesus had a lot of foreign religious influence. A lot of different deities were worshipped in Ephesus. There were temples in Ephesus that people worshipped at in, in some, some really disgusting and weird ways. I mean, temple prostitutes, uh, child sacrifice, some just sick ritualistic things going on in these temples. And here is God's church placed in the midst of this depravity. In the midst of this brokenness, the grand temple was the temple to Artemis. It had a famous amphitheater that could seat 45,000 people. The city was well known for the Greek Roman mystery cult religions, and in fact, Ephesus' charms were sold widely as insurers of good luck. Paul had been in this city as had Timothy, Priscilla, Aquila, and Apollos. And according to the tradition of the early church, the apostle John also lived in Ephesus until his old age. Ephesus is the first church that John is called to write to. Ephesus has been written to previously in another book of the Bible called the book of Ephesians. Paul wrote to the Ephesian church. In fact, it's kind of interesting that the very first book of the Bible we went through when I became pastor of Livingstone, back then it was Littlestone, was the book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians is a call for the church to be united under the banner of Jesus Christ to destroy things that caused conflict between Jews and Greeks, between Jews and Gentiles, that God has called them to be one people, united in him, and one God, one Father, one Lord, one Savior, Jesus Christ, one Spirit. It's called unity. And I think the church in Ephesus heard that call. They, it's like from what we read here in the first three verses of Revelation 2, they answered that call. They dove into the doctrine. They united underneath the doctrine and the teaching of Jesus Christ. They listened. They heard Paul's admonition and hearing, and they began to pursue God in a great way. It says here that uh, 
to the, uh, excuse me, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write these words. This is a solemn pronouncement. This heralds back to the Old Testament when the Old Testament prophet would roll into town and say, thus saith the Lord. This is a solemn pronouncement that they're supposed to hear. He says, these are the words, a solemn pronouncement from the firmly from the one firmly grasping the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. And again, last week we talked about what those things symbolize. God himself revealed what those symbols mean, that the seven stars are these messengers that are to go to the seven churches. God is holding these messengers in his hand. And Jesus is walking in the midst of the seven lampstands, representing the seven churches that he's writing to. And it is essential. And I want to take us back to last week for just a moment and cover two things that hit me after the sermon last week. The golden lampstands representing each of the churches. Gold is meant to, is this imagery, this understanding that the church was meant to glorify God. Gold is meant for glory. The lampstand itself was not the light but it was the bearer of light that God made these churches to glorify Him by bringing the light. And who is the light? Thank you. Absolutely. They are to be proclaimers of Jesus Christ where God has placed them. And here it is the reference again. And what's very interesting that last week we saw John responding to this message And he falls down on the ground as if he's dead. And at that moment, Jesus reaches out his hand and this powerful image of Jesus Christ touching him and saying, fear not, for I'm, to summarize the living gospel. What is John's position when Jesus reaches out to comfort him? On his face. Let me hear you. Just, I think there was a lesson in that that we didn't talk about last week that I just want to briefly say. The comfort of Jesus Christ only comes from when we're our face before Him, understanding who we are in light of Him. He fell down because He is a sinner and offers God nothing. And He should be condemned to hell. And Jesus says, fear not. If you're wanting to receive the comfort of God, it begins on your face before him saying, Lord, I am nothing but a sinner and I want you to full reign in my life. The second thing that I thought of when we were left out of here last week is the imagery that is painted here is in this, the Christ in the midst of the lampstands. Christ in his long robe is the high priest the high priest served in the, the, the priest served in the holy place, and they would have gone into the holy place and would have poured oil into the lamp and made sure that that lamp stayed lit. Well, the holy place, it was back in the day before electricity was going on, okay? And so in the tabernacle, the, that would have been a completely dark place if not for the lampstand. The holy place would have been you could, how many of y'all ever gone spelunking or explored a cave or took a tour in a cave? 
Y'all need to do that, okay? It's, it's, it's an incredible experience. The guide usually turns off his light, and you're in the cave, and you put your hand up in front of your face. You can't see anything. That's what it would have been like in the holy place, completely dark, if not for the light of the lampstand. It is a powerful imagery. Why is Jesus so hung up on the churches, glorifying him by bearing the light? Because we are in a world of complete darkness. And the church is to be the light to the world. And if the church does not bear the light, then it is worthless. It is not fulfilling in its purpose. And it should be just naturally thinking. If you've got a flashlight in your house that doesn't work, do you keep it? I really like Dwight. Okay, I I can see that. I'm going to fix this, is Dwight's thinking. I'm going to find out a way to fix this, right? But at some point, you got to give up on the flashlight when it refuses to work and it goes in the dumpster. Why do we think churches should stay around when they refuse to bear light? That's what he's saying. So he's going to talk to these seven churches. He's going to give them admonition. And what's crazy is, the reason Jesus can be so poignant with his discipline here is because Jesus is present amongst his churches, trimming their wicks, giving them every opportunity to keep the light shining brightly. He says against this church, and before I get there, he praises them. I know your works and your toil and your endurance and that you cannot tolerate evil. This is a good thing. Don't miss that. And please don't take the admonition later on to miss that these are good things. This church together, unified in Christ, man, they're pursuing the understanding of who God is. They are bearing up underneath horrible times. They're in a an evil city. And they're standing separated from that city firmly upon the name of Jesus Christ. They're laboring in theology. You know, to understand God and who He is, it it takes work sometimes. You dive into the Word and you study the Word and it's not done flippantly, but it, it takes time. And they're pouring out their heart in this and that is a great thing. Don't miss that. If you're sitting here this morning and say, I really don't study God. I don't study the Bible because it's so divisive. Listen to me. You were made to be in relationship with God. You can't know God apart from his word. He praises them for their steadfastness and their endurance to remain grounded in the word and the teachings of God. You're doing it. You're you're remaining steadfast no matter what's going on around you. You're doing it. Good job. Evil and sin disgusts you. That's fantastic. The world shouldn't be attractive to us and wanting to draw us in so that we, we stop pursuing Jesus so we can adapt to worldly understandings and to, to join in worldly sin. Verse 
We're to be separate. We're supposed to look at sin and say, that makes me want to throw up in my mouth. It should disgust us. You know wrong teaching when you hear it. Oh man, there's there's such students of the word that when somebody starts to stand up in their midst and proclaim a theology different or, 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 or teaching different and contrary to Christ, they're like calling it out. You're not teaching the truth. You're not believing the truth. You are out of here, buddy. Like, that's not good for this body. That teaching is not true to the word. No, we won't stand for it. We won't tolerate it. That's a good thing. To know false doctrine and to know teaching and to stand against it is a good thing. To protect the flock is a good thing. He says, You don't grow tired of defending God's name, you're courageous. You're courageous. These are good things. At this point in the text, you're like, I want to be like Ephesus. Yes, I want to be like Ephesus. And I would say a lot of Bible churches in America are like Ephesus. I think we're like Ephesus in some ways that, that yeah, this is true to us. We love God's teaching. We love doctrine. Right after this, we've got a, a, a time downstairs where they go through and they talk about this sermon and they correct my bad teaching. And, and, and they work on this and they strive through this together and they learn and they grow deeper together in the teaching of God's word. That's a great thing. Our children right now are downstairs being taught who God is and, and how that changes their little hearts and their little lives. That's a beautiful thing. We have ABF that gathers up here that we support that's part of this whole community that is, that is teaching the truth about God. That is a great thing. Yes, when I speak something falsely, this church body calls me on it and it's happened before and that is a great thing. We are a lot like this church and that's exciting to see. But good things can become bad things when they become ultimate things. Let me repeat that for you. Good things, doctrine, theology can become bad things when they become ultimate things. You see, doctrine and theology and uni unity in the name of God like this is, is a great thing. But when it becomes the object of our worship, it becomes a bad thing. Now what does it look like for that to take place? When the elders and I got together this week and the preaching team, we uh, wrestled with this a little bit. For Jesus claims this against them. This I have against you. Don't miss those buts. Sometimes in Scripture, you know, the contrast of conjunction. But I have this against you. Good thing. But the good thing has become the bad thing. And I have this against you that you have abandoned your first love. I want you to remember back That time when you first began to follow Jesus. 
And maybe your conversion was, was a pretty radical one. And I want you to remember back to the passion, the love, and the tenderheartedness that you had for Jesus. Just close your eyes and think about that for a minute. Like, like with child-like awe and wonder, our hearts were filled with this amazement that the Almighty God could love us to send His Son to die for all of our sin and brokenness could be forgiven because of the blood of Jesus Christ. There was nothing we could do to ever earn that forgiveness. Our hearts were filled with love for Jesus and a passion for Jesus to share Jesus, to proclaim the truth of Jesus, to be light for Jesus because we wanted to talk about Jesus because He saved us. that we wanted to know about him, not to teach a theology course, but, but because he loved us, but because he desired to be our God, to be our Father and Lord. And so we wanted to know about him. He was the ultimate thing. He's the ultimate God. We just wanted to worship him. But as we grow in our faith, we get distracted. That we somehow think that, well, that was childhood naivety. And we now somehow need to grow past that childhood naivety. And I think what Jesus is calling for the church here in Ephesus is to return to that. Like, you guys have gotten smart. You you could probably argue with the best false teacher out there. You guys could, man, you could teach some serious discourse. You You could argue, well, you're strong, you're courageous, you don't let anything bad come in. But guess what you're also doing is you're sitting here talking with each other about having deep theological conversations. But the world that I'm calling you to be a light to is walking right by. And you're so into your theology and your doctrine and your unity that it's become this us for and no more. They had a crisis. They had a crisis of theology. And you're like, what? You just got done praising them for their theology. Theology that is born outside of the love of God leads to self-sufficiency and idolatry. There are people today that are writing true books about our God and they're going to hell because the truth of God has never changed their life. There was a crisis of theology. They had a spiritual crisis going on 
They were moving towards theological specialization and self-righteousness. It was destroying their spiritual life with God instead of being on their knees in time with God, praying to Him and studying the Scriptures to have their heart changed, to be in right relationship with Him. They're saying, I don't need to be with Jesus. I can study about Jesus. How many of that is our time with God in the mornings? Or if we're even spending time with Him. We think if we read about Him, that somehow we're growing deeper in Him. And He's saying, draw near. Over and over again in the book of Hebrews, draw near. Be still and know that I am God. They're having a psychological crisis. And you're like, what? Yep. The search for psychological meaning is resolved in the revelation of God's character in Jesus Christ. And from that center, there is the basis for a healthy understanding of the human being that faces up squarely to who we are, to the complexity of personality, to the reality of sinfulness, it is the only source for the resolution of sinfulness, and that is because of God's love. Then and only then we are to celebrate who we are. We can't even properly understand ourselves apart from God's love. And finally, they have an ethical crisis going on. The love of God motivates us to act and to believe. Doctrine does not demand, nor theological teaching and instruction does not demand any kind of life change. But doctrine and theology grounded in God's love for us and our love for Him absolutely calls for it. You see, our essentials at Living Stone are to love God, love people, and make disciples. But you can be very well versed in doctrine and theology and united in those understandings and not doing any of our essentials. And that should terrify us a little bit this morning. That should scare us. Look, Lord, am I more interested in knowing about you or knowing you? Because knowing you means that my life is changed by you. Some indicators that this has taken place. These people were boasting in their labor. They had a sense of pride. Look what we have done. Look what we have accomplished. God forgive us. If we ever look back at our history at LSC and the things that, the things that we've done and selling the building and moving out of there and somehow putting a badge of courage on or a badge of pride on saying, look what we've done. No. Look what God is teaching us and how uh, teaching us to be reliant on Him. 
Here they are suffering. They're remaining steadfast. But instead of being worshipful with their suffering, they're sitting there saying, they're patting each other on the back. They're not just patting themselves on the back. They're going to each other and saying, great job, man. You're suffering. Look at you suffer, man. You're so good at suffering. (laughs) Instead of being, let's just worship Jesus right now because I'm running out of steam, you're running out of steam, and we need Jesus. We need more of Him. And thank you, God, for calling us to suffer for your glory and your sake. That you may be the ultimate thing in our lives. They're more worried about being right. Than loving the hearts of others. And I'm afraid that one hits a little too close to home. They're more concerned about being right. And I'm not saying we waver on truth. I'm not saying we, we cave into bad theology. No way would God ever want that for us. But do people know us for, hey, we're right. You know, there's this statement we joke around about as Dallas theological graduates. You can always tell a Dallas grad. But not much. Is that us? You can always tell a Livingstone church member or family member, but you can't tell them much. Because another thing that is a great indicator that we've become like Ephesus is that we're way more interested in speaking than listening. You ever talk with somebody that was like that? Kind of goes like this. You're, you're starting to talk and they're going, mm-hmm, 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 and they get faster. Yeah. And then you're like, you just stop. What do you need to say? Because you stopped listening to me five minutes ago. We're more interested in, in, in what we got to say because what we got to say is right. And we want to correct where you're wrong instead of wanting to know each other's hearts and loving each other's hearts and loving the hearts of our community. We have such a fear of being wrong and a fear of being misled keeps them from being kind and loving. This fear is it happens in a lot of churches that they're so afraid of inviting somebody in that's going to wreck their world that they just keep people out. I'm reminded of a great statement made to me way back in Bible school. Went out to Super Salad. We were ditching chapel. Went out to Super Salad and we're sitting around having lunch together and this older gentleman and I were getting in a heated debate and he turns to me and he goes, you know why you're so angry right now? I'm like, why? Because <laughs> you don't know what you believe. Listen, if we are confident in our understanding of who God is, we open up the door to have more conversations with those around us. But fear rises up because we don't know what we truly believe. I can have conversations with people that don't believe like me, that are hostile towards me, if I'm confident in my love 
that God has for me and my love for Him. It's a great motivation to talk and to share. How about as parents? Well, as parents, we become about following rules and telling our kids to follow rules instead of caring for their hearts. As employees, we become more worried about what is fair than looking to see what gospel opportunities that God is giving us to praise Him with. As students, we become more worried about grades and being right than loving those around you. As singles, you get more worried about finding the right person than worshiping Jesus in your singleness and letting Him be enough. As husbands and wives, we're more worried about your spouse, what your spouse thinks of you, than what Jesus thinks of you. Happy wife. Pretty ingrained in us, isn't it? Is marriage bad? Nope. Is singleness bad? Nope. Is being an employee bad? Nope. Is being a parent bad? Nope. Is being concerned about the theological direction of our church bad? Nope. But when they become ultimate things, they become objects of worship. What does God say in response to this? Remember, therefore, what place you have fallen and repent and do the works you did at first. For if not, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place if you do not repent. I'm going to stop there. Jesus is amidst the churches and He's calling them for repentance. What I love about these churches is while we're going to want to personalize this sermon as we should examine our hearts, even more so as a church body we should examine ourselves. What are we known for in this community? Are we known for being right? Are we known for being separated from? Isolated from? not caring about? Is that our reputation? Because if it is, and I think in some regards it has been, and I think it's in the process of changing, that God's calling us to repent. And repentance is a beautiful thing. And I, we harp on this so much, but I want you to understand, when we fall to our faces before God and say, God, we're sorry he then is able to put his hand upon us and say, and comfort us and says, Fear not, for I am the living gospel. That what you were once known for no longer needs to be your future. Because of who I am. Because of what I've done. This is not who you are. You are a new creation in Christ Jesus, an ambassador for the sake of the gospel to the world. That's who we are. So repent. It's a good thing. It's a beautiful thing. It's a wonderful thing that we get to repent and be forgiven and get back at it. But he says right here, if you don't, if you refuse, I'm taking away your lampstand. What's he talking about here? This is really critical, I think, for us to understand this warning correctly. He's not saying, I'm stripping you of your salvation. Not at all. 
But he's saying, I'm going to strip away your ability as a community to be a light for me. What does that look like? Guess what? I'm going to disband that church. I'm going to break it up. It's dead. I'm going to break it up so new life can spring up again. You know, churches are closing all the time in America. And I know people are like mourning that. But my God is big enough and good enough to know that where, where He is taking something away, He's doing it so that new life springs forth in Him. And sometimes churches need to die. If they refuse, if they become more about doctrine and being separated and isolationist and they need to die so that light can pour forth again. Or they need to repent. And in that repentance, they acknowledge, Lord, we have made these good things ultimate things instead of Jesus being an ultimate things. And we repent and we turn away from that. And that's hard to do. That's hard to do because guess what it means? Humbling ourselves and saying, I, I need to get involved in being in relationship with those around me. We need to get involved in our community. We're going to love our community. We need to do scary things for God, but for His glory. He goes on to say this, but you have also, but you have this, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I hate. I want to pause here for just a second. <laughs> I love Jesus throwing curveballs at us because he throws a big one at us right here. So the Nicolaitans are mentioned in Acts. Nowhere else in the Bible but Acts in here. What we know of the Nicolaitans is they took God's word, God's teaching, and married it with pagan sexual immorality, culture, and influence and tried to bring the two together. And so they got this sick, twisted understanding sexually of being in right relationship with God. Temple prostitution, those kind of things wouldn't have been considered sin or wrong. Okay? The teachings of God in the Scriptures on sex before marriage wouldn't have been wrong. The teachings of God of man and woman together as husband and wife, like other things being allowed, wouldn't have been wrong. Divorce wouldn't have been wrong. Like all these things would have been called right. And Jesus is applauding them and saying, You've called these things sin, and that's good that you've called them sin. And you stand against them. Church, I want you to hear me clearly. That is encouched in this call for repentance. That if somehow we've gotten involved in those kind of behaviors and that kind of life, that there's a call to repent and turn to God and understand what God says in His words. And this, this isn't my teaching. This isn't my instruction. This is what Jesus has said. This is what the Scriptures have said. Why? So we can be deprived of something. No! 
Absolutely not. That's what the world teaches. The world teaches that, oh, you got all those rules and all those things in the scripture, and it's robbing you of the great life that you can have if you just listen to the world. And Jesus is saying the opposite. I want to give you abundant life in me. I want you to have life and have it in abundance and goodness and greatness. And I want you to be this bright beacon of light for me in this world. It's not to take something away from you, but it's to add everything to you. Because someday we will stand before the King. Someday we will all stand before the King. And we're going to give an account. Did we listen to the king? Did we obey the king? Did we love him? Did we desire his words to rule and reign in our life and change us to live in abundance for him? And quite frankly, he's not going to care about our opinions in that moment because there's right and then there's wrong. There's worship and then there's idolatry. There's worship of the true God and idolatry of other things. I don't want us to worship ourselves. God has a powerful thing for us to learn in the midst of this. And if, if, if we find ourselves on the wrong side of this, we repent and Jesus is standing ready to comfort us and restore us. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. What is he saying? This is a tough word. Clarissa, could you go to the next slide for me? What does it look like for us to live this out? I liken to it driving down the road. The road has ditches to the left and right, doesn't it? And we're going to apply my dad's old principle. I pay taxes on both sides of the road so I can drive on both sides of the road whenever I want to, okay? So we're going to apply that principle here, okay? You go off to the right, you're in trouble. You go off to the left, you're in trouble. Off to the right, is being so in love with doctrine and teaching that we forget the one that we were supposed to love that gave us doctrine and teaching and theology, Jesus. We, and we pull hard on that steering wheel and we call ourselves conservative. And we protect and we defend the church. And, and we stand upon good teaching, but we're completely void of God's love and we're off the road and we're in trouble and we need to repent. But when you're off the road and you're sitting on the side, you're going nowhere. And God's got this road and this journey to take us down. And if you go off to the left, you become all about being accepting and, and, and being loving and being just all oh, compassionate towards everybody, but it's standing for nothing. And we swerve off the road and we crash and burn over here. And while we're, we're, we're really liked by everybody, people would really love us as a church body because everybody's like, oh man, there's such a nice church. 
But we don't call sin, sin. And we don't stand for the truth of God. And we don't want to see God's abundant life blossoming and glowing out of the wellspring of life in other people. And we're crashed and burned over here. And neither one is going anywhere. And both are in serious trouble. But to stay on the road and to keep traveling down this road, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to come to some pretty hazardous turns ahead. It's not going to stay nice and tra- straight and true. It's going to incline. It's going to decline. It's going to go all over the place. The only way we're staying on this road is not by our might or by our power, but it is by God's strength alone through the power of the Holy Spirit. Why did God send the Holy Spirit? To remind us of the teachings of Christ. To remind us what we're supposed to be doing. And what did Jesus say? How will the world know that I have come? By our love. So I ask this church, how are we doing? In our passion for Christ, do we want to know Him so He can change our lives or do we want to know Him so He can approve what we're already doing? Do we desire to be led by God or do we desire to be led by our own understanding? Do we parent out of a desire to know our children's heart or do we parent out of a desire to be heard and obeyed? Are we friends to those around us so that we might be somehow approved or so that we might somehow change them to the way we are or do we desire to know our friend's heart? How are you reading God's Word? Are you reading it as a book of cold academic research? Are you reading it as a love letter sent from the throne of God to us. Please join with me in prayer. Father God, thank you. Thank you for the conviction of my own heart and life in the midst of this. Lord, I thank you that where we're convicted this morning, there's opportunity for repentance. And I pray, Father God, that in the name of Jesus Christ this morning, that the Holy Spirit's convicting work would not be stopped by self-justification, would not be stopped by self-righteousness, but Lord, that all of us in here that call ourselves children of God would surrender to your work this morning and be open in confessing, Lord, this is where I have stopped loving you. This is where I have stopped being passionate about you and I've become passionate about other things, but not about the love of Jesus Christ.
teach us, O oh Lord. Renew our hearts once again. In Jesus' name we pray, and with the power of the Holy Spirit.